Now I'd like you to take your Bibles, if you would, please, and turn me to the book of Matthew, chapter 5. Matthew, chapter 5, is where I'd like to direct your attention this morning. So if you would turn there, uh, that would be uh, excellent. Matthew 5, I'm going to read from verses 21 to 32 uh, in just a moment. Uh, while you're turning there, I will just uh, offer a word of thanks to you for the uh, calls and prayers and cards and things that we received during our COVID convalescence. Um, we had it in our house and we quarantined and all of us had uh, mild symptoms as uh, the, the disease progresses, like most people we did, and uh, now we're out of quarantine and free as a bird. So um, thank you for your care for us. Now, Matthew 5, verse 21 Verses 21 to 32. Matthew 5, 21. Jesus said, You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, You shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, You fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them and then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you're still together on the way or your adversary may hand you over to the judge and the judge may hand you over to the officer and you may be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. You have heard it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than your whole body, for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. After World War I, John, uh, General Pershing decided to have a series of military parades in capitals across Europe. And for the parades, he wanted to recruit 27,000 American soldiers. So the word went out. All of the soldiers who were going to uh, participate in these military parades had to meet two requirements. Number one, they had to have an unblemished military record. And secondly, they had to be at least 1 meter 86 centimeters tall. Uh, now, word of the parade and the need for these soldiers reached an ammunition dump that was about 100 miles outside of Paris. There were 40 American soldiers there, and all of them met the first requirement. None of them had been court-martialed. They all had an unblemished military record. The problem came with the second requirement of being 1 meter 86 centimeters tall. Nobody knew how tall 1 meter 86 centimeters was, and they couldn't Google it. So they decided um, that they knew how tall they were relative to each other. So they lined up by height, 
Like a bunch of children at a uh, playground, they lined up back to back. Who's the tallest? Who's the tallest? And they lined up tallest to shortest. And the tallest guy was sure he was qualified. And the shortest guy was sure he was not qualified. A few days later, a captain from headquarters showed up and asked if there was anybody interested in participating in the parades. And they said, well, we're all qualified according to standard number one, but we don't know how about, about standard number two. So the captain drew a line on the wall six feet, one and one-fifth inches tall. And not one of those 40 soldiers measured up. Haddon Robinson tells this story, and he says, uh, well, Pershing eventually found his 27,000 American soldiers, but Haddon Robinson says that one of the points of that story is when you have a standard, it is futile to measure yourself against other people. Here are the standards of Jesus, at least some of them, about three basic issues. And the terrible news, the bad news about these standards is that there is not one person in this room who measures up. Well, at least I know I don't. Maybe you do, but I suspect maybe not. And what's worse about this news than the fact that we don't meet these standards is uh, what Jesus says, this warning, Jesus as we know him in our culture, right, is not supposed to talk this way, but Jesus in the Bible talks this way a lot. If you don't meet these standards, he said it over and over again, if you don't meet these standards, you deserve to go to hell. Do you remember how we got to this point in Matthew? So we've been walking through the book of Matthew since uh, February or so, and uh, we've followed themes. We're tracing themes through these chapters of Matthew, and the themes come from Matthew 28, these last verses in the book, where Jesus says, all authority, we're tracing the all words, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, therefore go and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey all of my commands, everything I have commanded you, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Jesus has all authority over all nations. He is worthy of all allegiance, all of our allegiance, and he is always with us. Here we are in this section of commands where we get to the everything I have commanded you part of Matthew. Remember, the first few chapters of Matthew are about how Jesus meets the plans and the prophecies and the promises of the Old Testament. He is the fulfillment of those Old Testament plans, promises, and prophecies. In chapter 5, though, Jesus comes and he says, not only am I the fulfillment of the plans and prophecies and promises of the Old Testament, I am the fulfillment of the law of Moses. I am the living embodiment of these commands. And here is what obedience to those commands looks like. It's a beautiful standard. Just think about how different our world would be if there were no angry words, if there were no lustful looks, if there were no broken marriages. Just think about how different our world would be. Jesus, as it were, takes the Old Testament, the commands of Moses, and like a prism, as it were, he, he sets them as a prison, prism and he shines a light through them and breaks the light into all of the beautiful colors. And here are the beautiful colors of the commands of Jesus. And we, his followers, take them up. Take them up 
in light of who he is, in light of the new covenant that he has given us. And it's beautiful. It's a beautiful picture. But next to those beautiful colors that Jesus reveals in the law, I stand next to them a muddy, dirty mess. So what are we going to do? What do we do about that? There are different ways to read these commands, and I want to talk to you about them, a couple of them this morning. Um, first of all, we could read them as an indictment, as an indictment, as a, a charge. These are commands, but they show us how we have failed. The Apostle Paul is very explicit about this in Romans 3.23. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Here are the commands, and we have fallen short of it. And this morning, Jesus takes us into three categories, murder, adultery, and divorce. Remember, Jesus' opponents in the Gospel of Matthew, the religious leaders, Pharisees, Sadducees, the scribes, the teachers of the law, they had a practice of taking the commands in the Bible and flattening them. Well, some of them. They flattened the commands that were hard to obey, and the ones that they thought they could do okay with, they, they uh, puffed them up. Just think about the Sabbath laws and how many Sabbath commands they had. They really puffed those up because, you know, we could do those. But, but there are a lot of the commands that they just really thinned out. And I understand why they did it. Why would we celebrate, why would we luxuriate in commands that, that we are destined to fail, that make us feel worse about ourselves? Robert Roberts said something about this. Um, this poor man, his parents named him Robert Roberts. But anyway, <laughs> Robert Roberts says, there's something comfortable about reducing Christianity to a list of do's and don'ts. Whether your list comes from mindless fundamentalism or mindless liberalism, you always know where to stand, and this helps reduce anxiety. Do's and don'tsism has the advantage that you don't need wisdom. You don't have to think subtly or make hard choices. You don't have to relate personally to a demanding and loving Lord. Here, Jesus, in this passage, demands something impossible. What? It would just be easier if we could thin this out a little bit and make it easier, not harder. That's not something he allows. Let's go through, the, uh, through those three commandments and see how Jesus thickens out what the religious leaders of his day had thinned down. We start with murder. Jesus begins in verse 21 with uh, quoting the uh, Old Testament law. You shall not murder. And then he pairs it with another verse in the Hebrew scriptures. Anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. And you read that and you think, great. It's been a long time since I've killed someone. Actually, most people have lived on the planet without killing someone. Great, check this one off. I am not guilty of murder. Yes. But then Jesus goes down into the roots a little bit, doesn't he? Into anger. You commit murder, you're subject to judgment. But I tell you, verse 22, that if you're angry with a brother or sister, you're subject to judgment too. Same punishment applies here. Subject to judgment. Angry. Now, uh, Jesus is not talking about all anger here. Some of you, are, you're already looking for an out. Jesus was angry himself. He was angry at sin and unrighteousness. 
But Jesus is not talking about the anger at sin and unrighteousness or injustice. He's talking about interpersonal, self-centered uh, anger. That, uh, anger that attacks and demeans other people. You can tell that because he talks about insults. Verse 22, um, again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka is answerable to the court. Now, probably no one said that in here, right? Well, Raka is an Aramaic word. It's a semi-swear word. So the Baptist Aramaic kids, their mother wouldn't let them say this. The Lutherans could, but the Baptists could not say this, right? It's a semi-swear word, and it's, uh, it's picking on someone's mental capacity. You dummy, you idiot, you numbskull. Fool, now fool is another word he uses here. Anyone who says fool, you fool will be in danger of the fire of hell. Fool, now if raka has to do with your mental capacity or your lack thereof, fool has to do with your moral corruption. You're a scoundrel. You don't say that as an insult. Nobody has done that for 50 years. How about you jerk? If you say these things, if you are angry at someone and you say those things or you say things like that, you deserve to go to hell. Don't think about these verses while you're driving. They will distract you. Don't think about these verses when you go to PTO meetings. PTO meetings are where people ask dumb questions. And, and when you give important information at, at PTO meetings, you have to say the important information 12 times. You say it the first three times while people are getting a pen to write it down. You say it the next three times so that they can write it down. You say it the, the last few times you have to say it so that they can correct the wrong information that they wrote down in the first place. It's hard to soar like an eagle when you're stuck with turkeys, and turkeys flock to PTO meetings. Don't think about this verses at PTO meetings. You probably would be better off if you would avoid thinking about these verses when it's time to play kickball in your neighborhood. I grew up on a dead-end street. It was great. Uh, we had uh, a, one car would pass our house about every 45 minutes. So we'd play in the street all the time. There was a cement pad right in front of our house, and that was third base. And across the street was a tree that was first base. And then there was a stick. We, we'd find sticks, maybe from that tree. That would be second base and home plate in the middle of the road. We'd play kickball all the time. You know what would happen. Uh, Jerry would be up. It would be his turn. The pitch would come, and Jerry would kick the ball, and Jerry would take what was supposed to actually be a double and try to turn it into a home run. So you'd feel the ball, and as Jerry is running third base, you'd throw the ball at Jerry, and you could hear the ball. You could hear him skim across the back of his shirt, whoosh, whistle as it, as it went by, and, and, and touch skimmed Jerry. Jerry would run, and he'd touch the home plate, and he'd say, home run, home run. He'd say, no, you're out. I hit you with a ball. You're out. And Jerry would say, no, I didn't feel it. I, I didn't feel it at all. I'm safe. I made a home run. And you, you, you argue and you argue and you get to the point where somebody says, you're a jerk and I hate you. If you think like that and you speak like that, you deserve to go to hell. And not because 
God cares so much about the second out in the third inning of your neighborhood kickball game. God cares about the fact that you have belittled and demeaned someone who is made in his image. Speak like that. Think like that. You are in danger of the fire of hell, Jesus said. Now, the adultery command, it doesn't get any easier. It doesn't get any easier as we go along. Jesus, again, begins with the, uh, uh, the, the commandment, you have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. Now, more human beings in history have committed adultery than have committed murder, but this is still not in a difficult uh, command to follow until Jesus thickens it out to a lustful look. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now we have trouble. This happens uh, occasionally. Uh, people will come. It happens to Scott more than it happens to me. But a young couple will come and sit down in his office and they will say, uh, we're thinking about our physical relationship. We're dating and we want to know how far is too far. And if you're asking that question, you're already on the border of trouble. Jesus is not forbidding you to notice that a member of the opposite sex is attractive. That's not what he's forbidding. It's, it is a gift of God to find members of the opposite sex attractive. It's what God designed your body to do, to, to recognize and observe uh, attractive members of the opposite sex. The problem is the lingering look. Yeah, but how much, is, how much lingering is, is, is Jesus forbidding here? If you ask that question, you're already in trouble. That lingering gaze plus your imagination makes you guilty. Uh, when Christianity began to spread throughout the Mediterranean world, uh, Christianity confronted the Greco-Roman culture in two significant ways. Uh, on the one hand, it confronted the culture about the... Uh, 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 idolatry and, and the soul worship of Jesus. A Roman soldier would have to say, Jesus, uh, Caesar is Lord, and Christians would say, no, Jesus, and Jesus alone is Lord. So there was that confrontation. But another confrontation, though, that, the, that Christianity had with the Greco-Roman world was over our sexual ethics. And Christians, they were odd, their practices were repressive. They were unrealistic. Their standards for uh, sexual intimacy were too hard, too high. No one could possibly do that. That's, you're, you're suppressing and hurting people with these rules. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Now, closely related to adultery, of course, is the issue of uh, divorce, which Jesus gets to, again, quoting from the book of Deuteronomy. Anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. We're going to talk about this more when we get to Matthew chapter 19, because it's uh, even more of an issue in Matthew 19. Jesus is asked a pointed question about divorce, so we're going to talk about this more when we get there. But just for a moment, they had the same debates in Jesus' day that we do about the biblical causes or the biblical reasons for divorce. And most of the arguments revolved around Deuteronomy 24, 1-4, which is an interesting passage of Scripture. It's a paragraph about divorce, 
It doesn't say what the reasons, the possible reasons for divorce are. It just gives the uh, procedure for divorce. If your wife, uh, if you find, and here's the only reason, something indecent in her and you're going to divorce her, here's how to do it. It's not a command to divorce. It's not uh, uh, um, a list of the reasons for it. It's just, if you're going to do it, here's how to do it. And the issue, the only issue there is something indecent. What does something indecent mean? In Jesus' day, there were two camps. One camp said something indecent referred to some sort of sexual immorality. And the other camp said... um, Anything that a husband didn't like about his wife. She burns breakfast, go ahead. So there were these two camps. Uh, Jesus falls into the more conservative camp when he says, I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except except for sexual immorality makes her the victim of adultery. Jesus says divorce is not required. And there's only this one cause, sexual immorality, which is a broad word. It's a word that's broader than our word for adultery, some sort of sexual impropriety. There are limited reasons to end a marriage. And if you play fast and loose with those limited reasons, you are wandering into adultery. Jesus is warning us. So these are the standards of Jesus. These first three commands. It's only going to get worse from here on out. Is there anyone who measures up in the room? Again, remember what Paul said in Romans 3.23. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I am guilty. I am guilty under these commands. Like the murderer that you saw on the news this morning. I am subject to judgment. I have not killed anyone, but I have called people fools at dozens of times. I am guilty and subject to judgment like the last adulterer that our congregation excommunicated from membership. This is an indictment. This passage indicts me. It also shows how the gospel according to Matthew connects with the gospel according to Paul by showing us, by pointing us the way out. Jesus is the lawgiver, but he is also the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The same Jesus who speaks these words met these standards perfectly. He lived this beautiful sort of life that he is describing I am a mess next to him. He is a wonder. He he fully obeyed all of these commands, but then on the cross, he took to himself the guilt that is mine. He took my sin to himself. He endured, as it were, the fire of hell that he refers to. He became subject to judgment for all the times I called somebody a fool He died and he rose again. And now he is the ascended Lord who rescues and redeems. If you read these passages, this passage, and you're a follower of Jesus, 
This is to drive you deeper into your gratitude for his grace and the mercy you have found from him. This truth has to settle in your hearts or you're not a Christian. At least not in the way that the apostles taught. So this passage is indictment that points to the answer that's at the end of the book of Matthew. Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He's our sin bearer who bears our guilt and shame. That's true. This passage is indictment, but there's another way to read this passage too. We read it secondly as a calling, as a calling. Something happens to you when you become a follower of Jesus. It's like what happens in our church when there's a terrible feedback uh, in the sound system. It happens occasionally. Um, when I go to pastor's conferences and there's ever a sound, uh, something goes wrong with the sound system, every pastor in the room shakes his head and it like, this happens every week at my church. Uh-huh, uh-huh. So let's imagine somebody gets up to sing or play and there's this terrible feedback. Ah! You know, and everybody, oh, we, we wince, we wince, the terrible sound. And the, the, in the sound room, they run to the soundboard to try to turn dial. What's the problem? Let's fix this here. The first way we read these commands, we read them as a terrible indictment. Oh, Jesus, what are you saying to us? We are guilty. This is horrible news. But when you become a follower of Jesus, God changes your heart. He reconfigures your heart so that you hear this now not as, as feedback, but as beautiful music. Music to which we dance. Toe-tapping, beautiful music that we want to get up and move to. How do we do that? Well, again, we can go back through these three commands. Instead of anger, instead of the anger that leads to murder, followers of Jesus make peace. And Jesus gets two examples here. He moves, notice how he moves from you being angry at someone else to you making peace with people who are angry at you. Notice he does that. First with brothers or sisters. Verse 23 if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them, then come back and offer your gift. This is why I say every month when we partake in the Lord's Supper, don't take this if there's an unresolved conflict between you and someone in our congregation. The Lord's Supper is not an altar, so the parallel is not exact. But notice Jesus takes this very seriously. Interrupt your worship to go make peace. Do this with brothers or sisters within the community and think about it outside of the community too. That's his second example. In business, settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Blessed are the peacemakers, Jesus said. We make peace. That's what followers of Jesus do. It's a song to which we dance. Secondly, we pursue purity. We pursue purity. Don't take verses 29 and 30 in this adultery section literally. You know it won't work anyway, right? If you pop out your right eye, your left eye is just as liable to lust as your right eye. Don't take it literally. But Jesus is saying pursue purity even if it's costly. Even if it means giving up something that you cherish and love and use and something that you think you really, really need, your smartphone, your internet access. 
Notice here, Jesus calls you to be ruthless with yourself, even as he calls you to be gracious with other people. Don't call someone else a fool. Don't get angry with someone else and say, Raka, but be ruthless with yourself when it comes to pursuing purity. Third, keep your promises. Keep your promises. We're going to talk about this more next time. That's a greater emphasis even in the rest of this chapter. But uh, here he's keeping your promises. The emphasis is keeping your promises to your spouse. Sexual immorality doesn't require a divorce. It is permitted. The words about reconciliation are here. But sometimes a marriage can be broken beyond repair. There are lots of reasons that our culture gives beyond what Jesus allows here for divorce. Lots of lots of reasons. Some of you have been through hard times in your marriage. And you've had people say to you, just quit. Your family says that you'd be happier if you would just leave him. Your friends say that your life would be better if you just give up on her. But there are those of you in this room who take what Jesus says about keeping your promises to your spouse seriously, and you have fought hard for your marriage, and you have pushed through. I have nothing for you but praise about keeping your promises. In 2004, there was an election in Ukraine. Uh, it was uh, uh, one of the regular elections they had, and, and Viktor Yushchenko was running in opposition to the ruling party. The ruling party was corrupt, and Viktor Yushchenko was trying to oust the uh, corrupt politicians. And actually, as the votes were being counted, and as they were counted, it came to be that Viktor Yushchenko won a plurality of votes. He won a majority. He, he was, emerged victoriously. But the state-run media changed those results when they announced it. And the announcers got on the news and said, Viktor Yushchenko has been decisively defeated. He is not the president, and our president has been reelected again. Well, down in the lower right-hand corner of the screen on the newscast was a sign language interpreter who was signing the news. And she knew the real story, and she started signing a different message. She said, I have a message for the, the deaf people of Ukraine. Viktor Yushchenko actually won the election. Text your friends, tell them, tell your family members that Viktor Yushchenko has actually won the election. And they, the deaf community in Ukraine responded, and, and there were uh, protests in the streets. It was the beginning of the Orange Revolution. There was another election, and Viktor Yushchenko became the president of Ukraine. Friends, the world has gone mad if you listen to the words coming out of the people's mouths around you, they are mad. The world has gone mad. And here, though, in this passage, Jesus is signaling a different way for us. Let's listen to what he says. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come before you this morning and we are grateful to you for these commands from the Lord Jesus. We're thankful to you for this prophet, your son, the prophet who, who gave us the law and gave us the truth about it 
and, and we stand condemned underneath this, these commands. Lord, I pray that according to your kindness, our condemnation that is evident in these verses would lead us again to the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ to revel and rejoice in what he has done. For those who are part of our congregation who have not yet turned and become a follower of the Lord Jesus, Lord, may this condemnation lead them to turn and trust in what the Lord Christ has done for us. We human beings are subject to judgment and in danger of the fire of hell. How grateful we are for our sin bearer, the Lord Jesus. And now we ask, Lord, that you would enable us to, as, as children of yours, to move to this music that the Lord has delivered for us. Make us, we pray, peacemakers purity pursuers, promise keepers. Do this work in us because we believe that the Lord Jesus is worthy of all of our allegiance. And we pray these things in his name. Amen.